Warning, this story contains content about suicide and drug abuse. My name's Morgan and I'm an addict. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Picket Fence. It's me, Chelsea. And this week is a super good story. I owe this one to Brenly. She sent me the information for her friend who is so amazingly, courageously vulnerable, I can't even stand it. And we're going to get deep into the life beyond the picket fence of an addict. So without further ado, this is my friend, my new friend, Morgan. My name's Morgan and I'm an addict. Um, My drug of choice is opiates, always has been, always will be. But if the opportunity is given to me, I will also choose vodka. So opiates and alcohol are uh, my crutch. And I am a mom of four little kids. I have a 12-year-old, a seven-year-old, and six-year-old twins. I've been married to my husband for 14 years. Um, my sobriety date is March 10th of 2020, which also happens to be my anniversary date. So we get to celebrate two really cool things on one day. Um, I have a super big family and my husband and I were both raised Mormon. Um, I did not touch drugs or alcohol. Well, I didn't touch drugs until I was 28. Um, I didn't taste my first sip of alcohol until I was 30. I, uh, once I touched and tasted both, I was kind of off to the races. I am a nurse. Um, I've been a nurse for 10 years. Um, and in my addiction, I did have my nursing license taken away. Um, and I am working diligently on getting it back. We went from zero to 60 real fast with Morgan. I wanted to know more outside of the addiction. Like, what was life like before? Before my addiction, life was great. I had, um, my oldest was a miracle of God. We don't really know how we got pregnant with him. It was like one of those situations where we weren't really trying, but we were kind of trying for like a year and a half, which is abnormal to take that long to get pregnant, even not like actively trying. Um, and then I went through nursing school and after nursing school, we started trying to get pregnant with truly and we couldn't. They tried for a year and couldn't get pregnant. So they went to the fertility doctor after a year of the meds and two rounds of IVF. They had a sweet baby girl, truly. Then when truly was 14 months old, Morgan had another pregnancy and they went back to the fertility doctor just to check everything since it was after all a natural pregnancy. And it turned out that was a chemical pregnancy. And when we went in to go see Dr. Amos, he's like, you know, your body's the perfect temperature. And we did so many IUIs and we did those two rounds of IVF. Maybe you should just try and see where it goes. And so they did. Three days later, when she was puking her guts out, she knew she was pregnant. And to their surprise, it was twins. After doing the math, they realized they were going to have three babies 21 months apart. Plus their oldest child. So now they were four kids strong. So we had the three babies in less than two years. So we went from having just Ryan all by himself. He was the first grandchild for my husband's mom. And he was spoiled rotten. Spoke like an adult at six years old because he was the only 
the only one. And then we went from him all on his own to like a nice, you know, kind of calm life to like four crazy chaotic kids all at once. (laughs) At this point, I remembered that after her first child, she had mentioned nursing school. So I wanted more information on nurse life. I got my first hospital nursing job. Uh, I was four months pregnant with Truly. And I didn't want to tell the hospital that I was pregnant because I was so worried. I was like, I'm going to not get hired or I'm going to get fired. Or, you know, I was like so nervous. I was like, I can't tell them that I'm pregnant. Um, except I had a Zofran pump because I had hyperemesis and they're like, what's that? And I'm like, totally nothing. <laughs> like we're all nurses. Everybody knows what it is. <laughs> oh so I tried to hide it and I did not even hide it past the first week. So It is what it is. If you're with us, she was a nurse with one child, got hired with the hospital while pregnant with number two, and kept practicing nursing throughout her infertility journey. So where did the addiction fit in? To understand, we had to go back to before the beginning. When I was 14, my mom was in a car accident with my little sister, and with that car accident, she was in the hospital for a really long time. She was very broken. The first week she was in the hospital, she was given a 10% chance of survival. So at 14, you know, I have got two older brothers and two younger sisters. I'm the oldest daughter. I became mom. I did the cooking and the cleaning and the grocery shopping. I was in high school. I was a synchronized swimmer. So I was doing all of these things at 14 and my dad recognized that something was wrong with me. I was, you know, depressed. I wasn't my normal self. So he took me to my primary care and he said, you know, this isn't really normal 14 year old stuff that she's taking care of. So I think she's probably having a normal reaction to that, but the situation isn't normal. So do we think maybe she needs to start a medication or see a counselor or whatever? So from 14, I've had depression and they, when I was 16, they diagnosed me with obsessive compulsive disorder and depression. Now, fast forward to having babies and going through fertility treatments, your hormones are all over the place. And I had that miscarriage and I had postpartum depression and it was bad. Morgan was no stranger to mental health, so she knew something was going on with her own. However, her husband seemed to be struggling more, so she put her mental health on the back burner. She knew she had to be there for her husband to help him through his postpartum depression. He went from an only child to having four children to take care of, and that was very overwhelming for him. And so I didn't want to risk him for me. And I thought that was like very like, diligent of me and like, I can do this. I am strong. I am, you know, an independent woman. I got this. So my husband's postpartum got worse than my postpartum in my head. Um, he got to a point where he no longer wanted to be here and he made it known. And so I remember the babies were about six months old. I was holding them and he was standing in front of the bathtub And he made these proclamations to me and I was like, okay, um, we, we had a firearm in the house and I made him give it to me 
and I said, we are not doing anything. You're not leaving this home. Um, his, he has a family member who's a mental health, uh, psychiatrist. And so he came over to the house and we made the decision to, um, not give him the option to go to a psych hospital. So he went to the psych hospital. And at that point I was working full-time as a nurse. I was nursing the twins. I was going to school full-time to get my bachelor's. I was taking care of everything at home and I was completely overwhelmed. So at that point, my husband, he's got, you know, some herniated discs and some things in his back. And he had this huge bottle of Percocet. And I was in my closet one day and I was just so overwhelmed. And I saw that huge bottle of Percocet. And I thought to myself, what, what would it harm to like, my head hurts. I'm going to take two and just see if it helps. And it helped. I cleaned the house from top to bottom. I got my homework done. Babies were taken care of. Everybody was happy. My husband was still in the hospital. We were good. Like, I got it done. And that's how it started. Morgan began sneaking more of these pills. Her husband was on a pain management contract, so they were keeping track of them, and no one could figure out where these pills were going. He, like at one point was like, I don't understand where they're all going. And I was like, you know, you get up in the middle of the night and maybe you're taking them in your sleep or, you know, doing whatever. And so he like set up cameras in the closet and he like monitored himself. And I like strategically found like, oh, I put a sweater over the camera. Oops, I still got my pills. And it was this whole thing of like a game of like, how do I get this? this magic pill that helps me get everything done around the house without him knowing. And so he can stay on his pain management contract so that he can keep getting them. And so it turned from that to me stealing pills from the hospital, to me stealing morphine from the hospital, to me stealing Dilaudid from the hospital. And it spiraled. When the twins were one, Morgan got caught. They reported her to the nursing board and the police. And it came to the point where Morgan had to say, I'm an addict. And oftentimes, this can be a hard step for addicts to admit that they're an addict. But for Morgan, it was easy. It was easy for me. Because I remember when I got caught and when the chief officer, the chief, I don't don't know his exact title, but when he called me from the hospital and he said, we have a problem. Um, We know what you've been doing. And I called my dad. And I said, dad, you need to come to the house right now. And he goes, okay, is everybody safe? And I said, yes, everybody's safe, but you need to come now. So he walks in the front door after like 30 minutes and he goes, what's wrong? And I go, dad, I'm an addict. That's the first thing I said to him. So I've never had a problem saying I'm an addict. And that's the first way that I was able to uncover this secret. Her dad was the safest person in her life. He accepted it without judgment. I always laugh because the first thing he said was, you know, I knew you were doing this somehow that wasn't normal (laughs) because he knew how much I was doing and he knew how I was like keeping things, you know, together by all appearances. And he's like something, something was abnormal. I just didn't know what it was. And uh, it was drugs. I was really curious to know how long Morgan was stealing drugs from the hospital. I've, I've tried to think about like a timeline 
and I can't quite put it together. I wish I had like a magical wand to be like, it was eight months, but I think it was over a year. Um, but I can't remember exactly how long it was. Eight months to over a year is such a long time to be carrying this secret and to be getting away with this. So me being me, of course I had to ask, how does one even get away with stealing from the hospital? When you're working as a nurse, you get like a vial, right? And in that vial, there's like 10 milligrams and your patient gets five milligrams. And so you give your patient that five milligrams, they get exactly what they need. And they're taken care of. Now you have that five milligrams. You're supposed to waste it with another nurse, but you're so busy. And the other nurses are so busy. They're like, oh yeah, it's wasted. You're good. You just, I mean, that's, that's how I did it is I would just take the waste. Now I never did anything that would harm a patient or that would put a patient at risk. Um, but I would just take the stuff that wasn't used and was supposed to go down the drain and didn't put it down the drain. And the only reason I got caught was because of the IV drugs. And I didn't do the IV drugs for a long time. It took me a long time to like get to that point, but it was because of those that I got caught. Cause those, you know, once you put a needle in your arm, like you want that rush every single time and you're not going to get that rush every single time, but like it's, that's what it is. Do you remember things when you're on drugs or do you just like do it all, but you're not really recollecting any of it? So it depends on how much you do. Like if I just do enough to like stop shaking because I'm addicted and I need it and my body depends on it, then I can function normally. If I do more to like actually get a high, then I'm not going to remember a lot of stuff. I remember alcohol being mentioned earlier, so I wondered, how did alcohol get involved? So uh, when I got caught and when I had to report to the nursing board, I was required to attend um, what's called an intensive outpatient program. So it's like an outpatient rehab. You know, you go home, you go to the program at night, and if you're like a first-time offender or like a new addict in recovery, that might work for you. Um, I ended up doing two back to back, not because I had relapsed, but because I felt that I needed it. So I went to my second one and this one um, was interesting for me. For the first time during this interview, I felt Morgan's pain in this pause. People usually pause when they're doing interviews with me to remember stories or to stop and rephrase. And I usually edit all those pauses out just for the sake of time. But I intentionally left this pause because this pause of silence said so much. And maybe we'll never get to know the full extent of what happened during that second rehab. But I can tell you this, that the residual pain is left over. And I could sense it and see it on Morgan's face. You meet so many people in rehab. I went in there with an open heart because my heart was like stone. I was sick. I was afflicted and I needed the help. So I went in there just completely willing and open to change. And in doing so, 
I got to meet some really cool freaking people. And these are people that I would have not met otherwise. These are friends that I would never have like stayed in the same room with. So in meeting these people, there's always that risk of like, when you meet them, are you going to just be friends? Are you going to relapse with them? Are you guys going to get in trouble together? Or are you going to stay sober together? Like what's going to happen? The second rehab I went to, I've stayed friends with a lot of people that I met there. And I'm so blessed that I have. But I also got into a lot of trouble with people that I met there. Um, so I've had to distance myself from some of them. And, uh, and these, these friendships, you know, you get to a point in rehab where you're sharing like these deep, dark secrets and you're so open and you have so many feelings and, and you just connect in ways that you might not connect with other people because they just might not understand. And so, you know, you, you make these relationships that sometimes aren't always appropriate. So when you connect with these people, like I said, you run the risk of relapsing with them. And I saw one of my good friends relapse. And instead of stopping him, I went over there and he was like, just try it. You're a heroin addict. You're not an alcoholic. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll just try it. And uh, that got me into a lot of trouble because just trying vodka is like for an addict, just putting a needle in your arm one time. It's, it's not good. It's interesting. The, uh, the dynamic of my addiction because he, everybody always laughs at me because I've never tried weed. I've never even seen weed. Like weed is not in my vocabulary. I went straight, straight to like Percocet and Dilaudid and heroin. And then like with alcohol, like never had beer. I've never had wine. I've just had vodka and it's gotten me into enough trouble. So she was going to outpatient rehab and then on the side indulging in her addiction. What a scary time. So I wasn't just drinking. I uh, had also one of my friends from my first outpatient rehab had introduced me to heroin and I was using heroin and drinking and uh wait pause so heroin you cannot get from the hospital so how are you getting them how are you getting your drugs I was buying it that's so scary was it scary it is it's terrifying it's totally terrifying like again white Mormon girl buying heroin in Phoenix you know like (laughs) it's and it's exhausting like the whole process of buying drugs is exhausting. You have to like connect with the dealer and then wait for the dealer. And it's always on their time and they can send you anywhere like from here to surprise and you're going to do it because you need your fix. And uh, it's terrible. So what was family life like during this time? I had to know. What did her husband think? How the heck was she putting all of this together? And how did she manage this entire web of lies and secrets? He didn't know I was using or drinking. And um, it's like, so so in the outpatient program, like people will do it differently. Now you're getting drug tested in the outpatient program. And I was getting drug tested through the nursing board. So I had to figure out how to get clean urine so that I wasn't going to get caught. So at the time... Uh, 
I hate talking about this because it's so embarrassing, but at the time, my daughter was potty training. <laughs> so she would like potty train in her little, you know, toilet. And I would put her urine in a five hour energy bottle. And then I would hide it in my bra to keep it warm. And then I would use that to pass all my drug tests. And so wow. they didn't know that I was using anything because I was passing my drug tests. So, wow. Okay. So eventually did this lead to having to do an inpatient rehab? Yes. Okay. So, so how did we get the, there? The way I got caught. So I had like, I'd been using heroin and I finally decided I was done. I was not going to use anymore. And I'd run out and I was just exhausted. I didn't want to run and gun anymore. I didn't want to try and find any anymore. Like I just wanted to be done. I wanted to be mom. That was it. So I made that decision. And I remember that night, like I'd used the last of it and we were sitting in the backyard and Ryan was playing baseball and we were just a happy family. And I was like, this is it. This is what I want. You know? So we put the kids to bed, we go to bed and then I start withdrawing and I'm not feeling good. And my husband says that he, he got this feeling that he needed to look through my phone. And I was like, okay. And it was an iPhone seven. So it had the fingerprint, but when you withdraw, either you like sleep really hard and you don't understand what's going on or you're awake. And I was at the point where I was like asleep really hard. So he took my finger, put it up against my phone because he didn't know the password to it because I didn't tell it to him. And he put it up against the button and he opened my phone and he found everything. And I wake up at three o'clock in the morning to him screaming in my face. And uh, I was like, I don't understand what's going on. Like, I'm so tired and I don't feel good and whatever. <laughs> and so he calls my dad and he says, Bruce, come pick up your daughter. I'm done. So her dad goes to her house. He, uh looks at me and he goes, Morgan Elise, we're doing this again. And I was like, I don't know what to do that. I'm an addict. And so he takes me to his house with his new wife, mind you. And uh, they put me in the guest bedroom and he sleeps next to me because he's like, you're not leaving this house. And I was like, I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm withdrawing. Like, I don't want to go anywhere. Her detective brother came over to the house and they all decided that she would need to find an inpatient rehab. And so they did. It was the hardest day of my life. Um, withdrawing from heroin is terrible. It is. It's exhausting. Your whole body hurts. You're shaking. You're puking. You're pooping yourself. Like, it's awful. Heroin is the worst Thing that you could put into your body and I remember just crying for my babies and crying for my babies and everybody was like yeah that's not going to happen and uh I finally like you know I finally kind of gave in to the fact that like I was there and I needed to do this thing and I needed to heal and get better and I spent 34 days inpatient the first time. Um, 34 days at this at this place. And, you know, I stayed sober for probably another year. Um, and then I don't even know, like, why or what or who or how or when. 
but I started using again and it was just small. I started using just with like um, Percocets and then it turned into Oxys. Um, and uh, this one is the hardest. This one is the one that got me in the most trouble. I had not been in any legal trouble until this last relapse. And this last relapse, I got arrested three times before, like in like a two month period. And so um, what finally got me was I overdosed. And with that, let's take a quick break. If you don't follow me on my social media, then you probably don't know that I'm doing a little bit of research for my show. And I'm looking for one more person to do a quick interview with to get inside your brain to make sure I'm producing the right content that you guys want to hear. So reach out to me at beyondwithchelsea at gmail.com. I'd be happy to get your input. Now, let's get back. Before the break, Morgan had just told us that she relapsed. I overdosed in a gas station bathroom in front of my three smallest kids. And uh, that sucked. That sucked a lot. Morgan can't recall a lot from that night, but she does try to tell me. What I was told um, was that my kids were screaming because they knew something was wrong because they couldn't wake me up. And so they were screaming in the bathroom stall. And somebody like broke into the bathroom stall and saw me like slumped over. What I do remember is being wheeled out on a gurney and seeing my three little babies sitting um, and some cute little mom like handing them slushies from the slushy maker and saying, it's okay. Like, and she there, she's like trying to get their heads like to turn so that they can't see me. Um, and it was just like, I can't believe I, get, I let it get to that point because these are the children that I'm supposed to protect from this. These are the children that I'm supposed to keep safe from drugs and alcohol. And I'm doing it in front of them to the point where I'm overdosing. As a mother myself, I can only imagine the power that these drugs must have had over her. To overpower that will to protect your kids, no one would choose this. And this was the wake-up call that Morgan needed. You know, they took me to the hospital and I was sitting on the bed crying. And my dad walks in, my dad, the key player in all of my stories, he walks in and he goes, Morgan, we have two choices. And I look at my dad straight in the face and I go, no, dad, we don't. We have one choice. I'm going back to rehab and that's it. And he goes, that's your choice. And I said, that's my choice. He goes, okay, let's do it. I was the one who said, I want to go back to rehab. And I did it. So she did it. And it was her choice this time. She overdosed on March 9th, 2020. March 10th, 2020 is her sober date. And oddly enough, her wedding anniversary as well. And then March 14th, 2020, the entire world shut down. And as it turns out, this was the best thing for Morgan's sobriety. She had six months where she didn't have to worry about working or her family's finances or anything like that. Her family was taken care of due to all of the COVID and the unemployment. Her kids were safe at home with dad doing homeschool while she was doing her inpatient and sober living. 
COVID in a weird way was a blessing for us that first six months because I was able to focus on my sobriety and I was able to focus on getting better and healing my traumas. And uh, I knew that my family was taken care of. During this time, Morgan did four months of sober living. This was her first time in her entire life that she ever lived on her own. She had a cool little apartment in a small community of recovering addicts, and she could go home as she pleased to be with her kids and to spend time with the family, and then go home back to her apartment to sleep and to really focus on herself. But it was nice to spend that full six months, like, on me. Morgan was finally feeling really good, but how was her husband? And I wondered... What does it look like to go home? When I went to my second inpatient in 2020, my husband was done. He was like, nope, we're not getting back together. I'm getting custody of the kids. Like, you're going to have to fight if you want anything. And I did. I fought really hard because I was not losing any part of my family. And I knew that I was at a point in my life where this all needed to be behind me for him to be more comfortable for me coming home. We don't have locks on any of the doors in the house. Um, You cannot lock yourself in any room in this home. And it's obnoxious because I want to pee in peace. (laughs) But do you know what? If it means that he feels safe and he feels more comfortable, then by all means, let's take all the locks off the door. If that means I get to come home, then take all the locks off the door. So if you're listening to this podcast on the release date, it is currently March 9th, which means tomorrow is March 10th. And that is Morgan's two-year sober date. So everyone do a little happy dance for Morgan. And we are so excited and proud of you. And we just hope two years turns into 100 years for you. Um, But I did wonder, with so much pain and hurt behind them, How does a family move forward from this? And what does life look like now? We go to counseling. We do play therapy. And the kids see the counselor at school. And, you know, it's so different this time around. And it's because I've taken all the secrets away. And I've made sure, like, I see... (laughs) My kids get so embarrassed sometimes because like I had to, when my husband had COVID in early January of this year, he was like, go get me cough syrup with alcohol in it. And I was like, what? No, I am not picking that up for you. And he was like, Morgan, please. And I was like, okay, Ryan's coming with me. And so my oldest came with me and this lady was like looking at the cough syrup and I was like, I need cough syrup with alcohol in it, but I'm an alcoholic. So um, she's like, you want me to walk with you to the register? I was like, yep, please. <laughs> and my oldest was like, mom, this is so embarrassing. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm protecting us. We're way more open and honest and like communicate really well. Um, but we do like check-ins a lot. And, uh, even my 12 year old has boundaries, which is good. He knows and he gets it and he, He will ask me questions, definitely more so than the little ones, but he'll just be like, where are you going? What are you doing? Will you FaceTime me? I'm like, yes. Speaking of her kids, I was curious to know if 
her kids do remember the night of the overdose. I mean, after all, they were only four and five years old. So occasionally, like, they'll say stuff like, hey, mom, remember when you fell asleep in the bathroom? But aside from that, like, they don't say a lot about it. But I'll always be honest with them if they ask me. Morgan kept bringing up lying and secrets, and I wanted to know what does this look like behind closed doors? So when I was using, um, I thought I hit it really well. There's holes in the walls that will prove otherwise. Um, but he, like, he would catch me once or twice and be like, no, I'm done, I'm done. And then we'd be okay for a couple of weeks. I'd still be using, but I mean, I was hiding a lot of money. I, cause drugs are not cheap. And I was constantly like finding ways to get out of the house so that I could go pick up drugs, like out in Phoenix. And it's like, why are you driving out to Phoenix every day? And there was so much lying, so much hiding. And it was just, it's definitely not a place I want to be anymore. So what is different now for Morgan so that she doesn't have to live in that headspace anymore? So today, there's a lot more like little victories. Some of my little victories are like, I got up and I showered today and that was what I needed. And I went to a meeting today or I reached out today. Like my biggest thing is I don't ever know when to ask for help. Like asking for help is the hardest thing in the world for me. And there's this saying in AA that goes, the heaviest item in the room is the phone until you pick it up. And it's so true because once you pick up that phone, once you talk to somebody in recovery, it just releases the burden of the problem. And truthfully and honestly, like the secrets were always the biggest thing in my addiction. Like the secrets, the not asking for help, the thinking I could do it by myself. I'm not superwoman, you know? I am not the kind of mom who has like everything Pinterest perfect in her home, but my kids are fed, my kids are happy, my kids are loved, and their mom's in the house. And that's my biggest victory because that could have been taken away so easily if I would have continued with the lying and the secrets. Morgan has gotten way better at reaching out for help, and it used to scare her husband when she needed a meeting, but he has learned and realized that it's not really about him. It's important for her to go to a meeting when something feels off. If she needs someone in recovery, she calls a sponsor, and she always divulges her secrets before they take over her and says, hey, I'm feeling a little squirrely. I just need you to know where I'm at. With all of this craziness around the drugs and the overdose, it's really easy to forget that Morgan is a nurse. And I wanted to ask her, how's everything going with the nursing license? You have like three tries and that's it. And I'm on my third try and that's it. Like, so I have, like I had mentioned, like I had some legal issues that I had to take care of. And so... Once these legal issues are resolved, then I will be eligible to get my nursing license back. But it's like a whole process. Like you have to go through a psych eval. You have to go through rehab. You have to go through meetings and programs and blah, 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 drug tests. And oh, it's terrible. After explaining all of this frustrating process to me, Morgan implores, don't do drugs. 
I do know quite a few drug addicts and I know it's a thing to never be able to say like I'm recovered and the urges may lessen over time and they could go away but it is important not to get lazy because those cravings could always come back. You are always in recovery. I wanted to know if Morgan could explain to us what an urge feels like for her. Okay, so this might be crazy if there are people listening who are like in recovery, but like for me, um, when I get urges, like my jaw right here like tightens and tingles. And I'm like, okay, the only thing that's gonna make this go away is an opiate. Like that's my urge is like right here. Or I get like a tight chest and like a pounding heart. And I'm like, the only way this is going to stop is if I put an opiate in my body. But today, because like I do so much recovery work, like I don't have that anymore. And that's not to say it will never come back because it very well could come back if I stopped doing the work or if I let myself go, like that could very easily come back into my life. But like, I have not had like an urge or like a twitch or like, you know, a squirrely feeling in quite a while. Yay! And Morgan goes on to explain how recovery isn't even just a Morgan thing anymore. It's a family thing. Recovery is about the whole family. Because like with my kids, we do before bedtime, we sit on the bed in like a circle and we do positive affirmations. And this is something I learned like, as like a form of meditation and recovery. So I'll like pick like the kids who have been fighting all day long or like, you know, and you have to give them two positive affirmations and they give you two positive affirmations. And then we go around the circle and you give yourself one positive affirmation. And like, that's my way of involving everybody in my recovery, you know? Cause it's just, it's positive, it's meditative. And it just is like a nice, happy feeling. And we all need those, so. Another huge help for Morgan is making sure she's always on the correct medication for her mental health disorders. And she stresses that finding the right medication is huge. I finally found the right med for me, and I found what worked for me, and I've stuck to it, and it's played a huge part in my recovery. I check in with my physician once a month. And when I check in with my physician once once a month, we ask all of the questions to make sure that my meds are correct. After listening to this entire story, I really wondered if my idea of, you know, the hard and the ugly always being beautiful was even true. This was a lot of trauma and a lot of pain. And then Morgan said this. Honestly, like, and I've always said this, I don't regret my addiction. I will never regret my addiction. I'll regret aspects of it, but it's taught me more about myself in the last six years than I learned in the first 28 years of my life about myself. I've learned how strong I can be, how resilient I can be, and truly how incredible I can be as a mom and a wife and as me. You know, addiction sucks and it tears families apart, but I can fight hard enough through it to keep mine together because that's what's most important to me. So I asked Morgan what's like her overlying message to the world and she had been talking a lot about secrets and lies and she goes on to explain how keeping secrets is really not great for us. With addiction, like you keep so many secrets as an addict, right? 
And you keep so many secrets in your addiction to hide from everybody else that once you start uncovering those secrets and once you start like making them not secrets anymore, then it takes away all the power from them. And so once you strip the power from those secrets, that's where you find your true beauty. And that's where you find your true healing because those secrets are there for a reason. You've kept those secrets. Something is going on with those secrets that you need to kind of delve into and like figure out why do I have these secrets? What is keeping me from being honest with everybody? And once you're honest with everybody, then those secrets don't have power anymore and they can't hold you back. There's a saying in AA that goes, secrets keep you sick and they absolutely will. They will kill you. Secrets will kill you. If you don't tell on yourself, you don't have anybody else to do it for you. And that's what's going to take your life. Another beautiful lesson Morgan learned from her addiction. She learned to be less judgmental. I grew up, you know, um, in Salt Lake City, Utah, in this little town called Holiday. Um, Just all members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I have a big Mormon family. Um, I was married in the Mormon temple with my husband. Like we are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So I go from Holiday, Utah to Mesa, Arizona, you know, number one Mormon town to number two Mormon town. And I live in this bubble. And I would like to think that I wasn't a judgmental person, but walking into rehab, you meet these people and Addicts are some of the most incredible human beings you will ever meet in your entire life. We are terrifying. We will rip your heart out, but we have stories that will change your life. And that's what I was given the opportunity was to meet these people and befriend these people who are so different than what I was used to. In fact, if you step back and study addiction and the recovery world, most addicts have suffered a trauma. Russell Brand has a quote that says, Cannabis isn't a gateway drug. Alcohol isn't a gateway drug. Nicotine isn't a gateway drug. Caffeine isn't a gateway drug. Trauma is the gateway. Childhood abuse is the gateway. Molestation is the gateway. Neglect is the gateway. Drug abuse, violent behavior, hypersexuality, and self-harm are often symptoms, not the cause, of much bigger issues, and it almost always stems from a childhood filled with trauma, absent parents, and an abusive family. But most people are too busy laughing at the homeless and drug addicts to realize your own children could be in their shoes in 15 years. These people are going through this not because they're wanting it. It's usually because something has happened in their lives. If you put a bunch of addicts in a room and you ask them why they're addicts, nine out of ten times it's trauma-based. Morgan knows this is the case and admits her children's trauma was her fault and that's why she is doing everything in her power to help her kids cope now. Morgan also wanted all of us to know that recovering addicts are not scary people. Just have a conversation with us and like ask us why. We'll probably tell you. So what does this story offer you and I? Maybe a lot of us listeners are not specifically struggling with drug abuse, 
But what can we learn from Morgan's experience? I learned one, we really cannot judge people. Of course, if there's someone in our lives struggling with addiction, we definitely need to learn to set boundaries and protect ourselves to also help them. But what they're going through is not a choice. They have something controlling them, and the reason that they're doing it is probably something so deep that we don't even understand. So they don't need additional hate because they probably already hate themselves. Second, this idea of secrets. I googled, is it bad to keep secrets? And this is what I found. Scientificamerican.com says, it hurts to keep secrets. Secrecy is associated with lower well-being, worse health, and less satisfying relationships. Research has linked secrecy to increased anxiety, depression, symptoms of poor health, and even more rapid progression of disease. It goes on to say, New research, however, suggests that the harm of secrets doesn't really come from the hiding after all. The real problem with keeping secrets is not that you have to hide it, but that you have to live with it and think about it. And I believe that in those secrets, Satan has power over us. And so I say, it's time for us to get brave and bold and let those secrets out to whom they need to be divulged to so we can be free from those thoughts and those secrets. For me, this looks like when marriage gets hard and I'm feeling unloved, I have thoughts of other people. And I don't want to tell my husband this because that's like super scary, right? But maybe I'm not the only one having these thoughts. And so I divulge this secret to him and I am free. And he realizes that we need to start loving each other better again. And I don't believe that I have these thoughts because I'm a horrible person and I'm going to cheat on my husband. I think that these are temptations and these are human thoughts that go through people's head. And instead of keeping it a secret and causing all this turmoil inside myself, I just divulge the secret and then it has no power over me. It actually just has no power at all. So whatever secret it is in your mind that's bringing you guilt or shame, I invite you to divulge the secret and to be free. And with that, I asked Morgan, and I'll always ask, what do you wish people saw beyond your picket fence? My white picket fence is like messy and dirty and chaotic and that's okay. We're freaking happy over here and there's so much love. I can't even tell you how many snuggles I get in a day. Like the fact that these kids still freaking love me after what I did to them is like mind blowing. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Beyond the Picket Fence with Chelsea B. Please go into your app and click the leave a review button. That would really help me reach a lot more people so we can connect and cultivate a society with less comparison and more kindness and connection. As per usual, here's an extra clip for staying to the end. At this point in my recovery, if I have a friend who relapses or falls off the wagon, I make the choice to to distance myself. I will no longer go rescue them and I will no longer be in the same room as them if they are actively using because that's my boundary. And there's a quick lesson in boundaries for us. Morgan, we're so excited for you that tomorrow is your two year sober date. We're proud of you. Stay strong and enjoy your wedding anniversary. All right, folks, that's it. Bye. Bye. Bye.